Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. Every year, Callaway just keeps pushing and pushing the boundaries when it comes to driver technology. But this year, get ready to push your game further than humanly possible because the new Epic Flash driver with Flash Face technology is shattering the idea of how fast a driver can be. It's Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. What's that mean? Using machine learning, Callaway's supercomputer, yes, they have one of those, was able to test, refine, tweak, and retest over 15,000 different faces to find the fastest one. That's flash face technology. These same AI calculations would take your laptop 34 years to complete. When you engineer a driver face with artificial intelligence and pair it with revolutionary jailbreak technology, it transforms the way a driver is made. Yet again, and it's not just in a driver, AI created flash face in the fairy woods too. It's not just another fast driver. This is the future of distance technology. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is a Major League Baseball player, played uh, college baseball here at Vanderbilt University, now plays for the San Francisco Giants, coming off his rookie season. Mike Yastrzemski. Mike, how are you today, buddy? I'm great. Couldn't be better. Well, thank you for taking time to come on The Verge. Um, When you uh, think back to that moment in time in in your baseball life, where this went from something that you did as a kid that that was fun and awesome to like wow I got something here what was that moment who was who were the kind of impetuses to show you that you had major league talent uh that was a long process uh it was more or less focusing on getting to the next step and once I was playing in high school you know I said I want to I want to play college baseball and obviously the long-term goal is to go to the big leagues and to be drafted and all those great events, but it was one step at a time for me. And when I got to the point where I was getting recruited, I said, I want to get out of New England. You know, it's cold, it's snowy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was sick of that. So I was looking at all these places and had these pipe dreams of wanting to go to FSU where my dad played, loved Baylor, Rice, all these like super – crazy college baseball programs Mm -hmm. and then I'm at a camp at Florida State and Corpse calls me and he said hey do you want to you know come check out Vanderbilt and I said uh yeah sure you know the only thing that I knew about Vanderbilt at the time was there was one college baseball video game that came out in 2007 and they were the best team in the country at that point. So I always played with Vanderbilt. Because, mm-hmm. you know, as why a not? kid, why wouldn't you play with the best team? <laughs> you know, your friends are playing with some, like, B-level team. And you're like, no, I'm playing with Vandy. Yeah. And so then I came down. And um, honestly, it was about getting to Vandy and securing a good education for myself. 
And once I did that, then I was able to open up to other possibilities. Well, I mean, there is a huge statement out there that I wish more and more people would would grasp a hold of, which was even if you have an incredible baseball career, mm-hmm. by the time you're 35, 36, there's a really good chance that you've, you're at the end of your baseball career. Mm-hmm. The cool thing about that is you've had an incredible baseball career. The negative thing about that, which gets a lot of professional athletes, is you still have like 60% of your <laughs> life left to live. And if you don't have a good educational background, you don't know, one, what to do with yourself going forward. You don't know what to, how well to manage what you've been so fortunate to accrue over that time frame. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a good education, generally speaking, you make bad decisions, both in what you do with your time what you do with your body, and that is critical. Where did you – who are the impetuses behind you getting education first, sports second? Um, definitely my parents. So my my mom comes from a family of five sisters, and so it was, uh, it was six girls running around the house, and it was kind of everyone fend for themselves. And so she learned how to prioritize and how to make things – happen for herself and so that's where I came from that so having that background and having family where there's almost competition in your family Mm -hmm. so you got to be a little louder than the person next to you in order to be heard Um, so that was that was part of finding my own path right so she helped me learn that there's a path for everyone and I can find it then the other side of that was my dad who went to Florida State and what he wanted to do was go to Stanford. Got into Stanford, but the coach at Stanford ended up taking the Yankees uh, hitting coach job. Mm. So he wanted to play for a guy who he liked and who would treat him well and play him. So then he went to Florida State instead. And so he said that was one of the biggest regrets of his lifetime because you can't pass up a Stanford education, yeah. you know? And so that was one of those things where. I started to learn, not necessarily from mistakes, but stories of saying, you know, I think that the number one thing is finding a place where you're going to enhance your your mind and challenge yourself on the same level. And then also to secondary is to find a coach who will push you just like you want to push yourself. Yeah. So that, and that's what I found with, with Vandy and Corbs the first day I stepped on campus. Yeah, I, although I haven't met him, he is a high-priority one to have on this show and to just get to know him because of so many people saying that I need to meet this guy because mm. we're kind of cut out of the same cloth, and he's a, he's a brilliant leader of men. Talk to us about some things that you remember about uh, Coach Corbin that you put into play as often as you possibly can in your life? Well, I, I'll only have to go on a couple of them because if we were going to go through the whole list, we'd be here yeah, for, for 25 for, hours, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing that he he preaches on is teaching you how to be a leader, right? Because at some point, as young men, you're going to grow up to be the leaders of your family. And when you are the leader of a family, you have tough decisions to make and you have to be responsible and accountable and all of these qualities that you're not going to have when you're 18 years old when you show up on campus. Mm-hmm. And the the first thing is the, that accountability. Um, and 
that is more being about what you preach. So don't tell somebody to act a certain way if you're not going to act it before you tell them to do that. So he was the first person to step into the fire and the last person to step out. And he would never expect you to do something that he wouldn't himself. So if we have a 6 a.m. lift, he's already lifted at 3.30 in the morning and he's ready to go for his day. So it was a lead by example and you had no choice but to follow because you saw how how impactful he was in so many people's lives and and changing them for the better that it was it's contagious. Yeah. I think that's super powerful to be able to when you lead, it's a very unique position to be in, especially when you're leading, you know, kids probably from fifteen to twenty five mm-hmm. where you're not fully formed, you're kind of trying to figure out and navigate your talents in whatever it is, whether it be in computers or whatever, it's a pretty weird place to be if you're not prepared completely for it because it's easy to read about 500 books on leadership and then spew the words. Right. But everybody's watching. Mm-hmm. And if you're not backing it up with your own actions, it's, it's, it begins to be hollow. And it can only work then if there are other leaders around and you have a lot of talent. Right. Because if you don't... That leader, that lack of true leadership, turns into a um, an erosion of confidence and of misleading, mm-hmm. and then it's it veers off the rails. That's yeah. very powerful. And, and, and if you're on the flip side of that, you get sniffed out real quick, right? Oh yeah. You know, people see through it, and you know they may give you the respect because you know maybe you're a senior and you have a couple young guys that you know you tell them to do the right the what they're supposed to do and if you're not doing it they may agree because they have to for the first week but i mean that stuff that that just weaves its way out real quick yeah i think that there's a lot of kids that that listen and they think well what about the guy who doesn't do what he preaches but he's still really good and i would say well when you get there's only that can only go so far and it's probably not into college Mm -hmm. I don't. Th- I can't think of anybody who was really good at something in college as an athlete that weren't no. implementing the proper processes to be great. Because nobody's so good that they can just do all wrong things and still dominate. Yeah, I don't think that's possible. There's, uh, and I, and I think there's also different levels of greatness too. And when you when you take a well-rounded human being and put them with the well-rounded athlete then that's going to create the beast, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah. when you have just one or the other, you're going to look back and say, you know, that guy had it all. But he just didn't, He just could not figure something out along the way, yeah. unfortunately. So you know, true. That's how it works. Yeah. When, so I'm sure you've had a ton of coaching, and it, it's obviously, to anybody out there, your grandfather would have to be a pretty, a pretty likely source of knowledge when it would <laughs> come to being a what it takes to be a great baseball player. We're going to get to Carl in a little bit, but what other coaches, maybe in the major leagues now, who are the people that are that are influencing you the most in San Francisco? And how different is it, would you say, of being coached as a college baseball player, the, the one of the five biggest programs, mm-hmm. to being coached by a major league manager? Yeah, so I think the, the best thing about coaches in the major leagues is they're not really coaches right so what they are is they're bumpers because as players we need to be you know we have to be willing to go after what we want to achieve and if we don't have that drive and that 
that care level, then we're just going to fade out and either not make it, not have a long career, whatever that may be. But the other players are kind of like the gas that keeps you burning where they're still, they're in the game right now. They know exactly what you're going through every day. There are a lot of coaches out there that forget how hard the game is, Hmm. you know, because they were either one so naturally gifted that it was easy for them or two, they project themselves to be way better than they ever were. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny when we're talking about being accountable and truthful and, and all these qualities that create great leaders when there are guys that may not do that and you see through it, but the good coaches in the major leagues, they're great bumpers and they keep you on your path. So you can come to them and say, you know, I'm feeling this or I'm feeling my my lower half's not working properly or my upper half isn't working properly. And they'll look, they'll sit you down and show you the video and say, yeah, that's great. You know, maybe you might be right, but how about your timing? You're, you're late on everything. You say, huh? Yeah, maybe you're right. So we have all these crazy mechanical thoughts and thinking about our swings and whether they're on plane, whether our hands are coming through first, whether we're firing from our backside, all of these technical things, but we forget that it's a reactionary game where you can only do what the pitcher's allowing you to do. So it's it's really hard to center that mindset when you're in the heat of the battle. So when mm-hmm. when things are going really well, you don't need to talk to anyone. When things are really bad, all you want to do is talk about it and figure it out and do everything you can to get back to where you were. And that's where the coaches are so good because you are at the highest level of the game and you can't go any further. So there's not really a point of teaching to get better. It's about teaching to maintain what you've learned. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they do a really, really good job of being bumpers. Mm, That's interesting. uh, And then when you're in college, the difference between what you learn in the big leagues and what you do with Coach Corbin is that you're developing skills that will help you when you get to that level. So you're taking more swings, you're taking more reps, you may be making yourself more tired, um, and you're focused on those smaller details of learning the game. And when when you get to the big leagues, it's not about necessarily learning anymore, it's about being able to perform what you've learned. Mm-hmm. So that's where it gets different where it gets different in thinking, okay, I need to learn the game of baseball more. That may not be true. You just need to learn to fine tune how you can how you can produce when it comes to your game time. Yeah, so true. I th- two things for me on that. One is um what it takes to get to the major leagues is not what it takes to stay mm-hmm. in the major leagues. And on the PGA Tour, one of the things that I spent a lot of time helping people understand, not that I work with tour players much anymore, but when I did, was like what it took for you to get here, the amount of reps that it took for you to get here, and the mindset of perfection, perfection, technique, technique, you already got that now. Mm-hmm. The more you fiddle with those things, the more you're working your way off of this tour and the mindset to, okay, now that I'm here, how do I not use the word maintain like I'm, I'm trying to stay stagnant, but how do I get better at maybe different processes versus trying to get better at my mechanics? Right. That like is how, do I, how do I get better at winning? Yeah. Because that, that's the end goal. You know, you can't 
like I was saying, you can't progress anymore once you're on tour, right? Yeah. You know, there's not this like super ultra tour that there's only five guys on. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I see a lot of similarities in the fact that you can see these superstars come up and then all of a sudden they fizzle out for a little while because there's a whole nother level to the mental side that, mm-hmm. that you're not exposed to. There's, you know, all these media pressures and there's crowds watching you and, you know, there's always eyes on you and people that are judging and watching every move you make. And so you have to learn to either one balance it or two learn to shut it out. And there's, there's a couple different ways to go through that, but it's just a, uh, it's a new process that you have to learn. So true. The other thing that you kind of alluded to that I'm very interested in for most people in life, which is slumps mm-hmm. and that's a big time baseball word slumps. I'm sure you had one. So, I mean, at the end of the day, what are some of the things that you use to persevere through a slump and something that was different about a major league baseball slump versus a college slump? Um, <laughs> you know, major league slumps are hard to swallow and you have to, the only way you can do it is by understanding that they're going to happen regardless doesn't matter if you're Albert Pujols, Ken Griffey Jr., Mike Yastrzemski, whoever, you know, whatever your name may be, like you, I promise you, you will have a slump. And when you get to that point, it's about understanding that there's no need to panic. There's no need to put more pressure. And that's the first thing that I would do when I'd get into a slump is I would put so much pressure on myself. It's like, oh, just one hit's going to get you out of it or you know, taking a walk, doing whatever. And then all of a sudden the guy paints three pitches and you're walking back to the dugout again. It's like, man, <laughs> I thought this was going to go differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's the heightened sense of pressure is the difference between college and the pros where when you're in college, you say the only thing that you're fighting for is more time on the field. And the more chances that you can get the more opportunity that you're going to be seen by scouts and, you know, you can have all these chances to do all these great things. Now, when you're in the big leagues, that's your, it's your livelihood. Yeah. And so you have to swallow a bigger pill per se to maybe put your ego aside or do something that makes you uncomfortable, something that pulls you outside of your zone to say, you know, maybe going straight isn't what I need to be doing. Maybe I need to be going left right here. You know, I need, I need to take this left-handed turn so that way it gets me back onto the path because I'm going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And being able to admit and to ask for advice from other players and guys who have been in the league for a long time, that, that's the way to do it because they've all been through it. I, you know, every single person goes through a rough stretch in every single year. No one has one full consistent year where they're the best player ever. Yeah. So it's about accepting it and being able to put your guard and ego down to say there is some way for me to figure this out. I just got to try it. Yeah. I thought really one of the most interesting TV segments I've ever seen in any sport in my life occurred two world series ago when Frank Thomas, a rod and Pete Rose were talking mm-hmm. in, uh, in studio and a rod asked Pete Rose, what did you do when you were in a slump? Cause that was something that, you know, he and, and uh, Frank Thomas were really interested in. And he said, you know, as soon as I felt like I was in a slump, 
I was probably thinking I was in a slump before I was actually in a slump. Mm -hmm. And I started to move around the box so that I could change the perception of how I saw the pitch come out of the, the pitcher's hand. So sometimes I'd move up in the box. Sometimes I'd move out, you know, away from the plate. Sometimes I would really crowd the plate. But all I was trying to do, and I might do it all, I might do all four parts of the rectangle in the box until I saw a pitch the, the way I needed to see it. Hmm. And A-Rod was like, whoa. <laughs> I, and, and, and so Frank Thomas is like, that's really incredible. How did that help? And he goes, sometimes when you're late, you have to force yourself to get faster so you move up in the box. Sometimes you feel like you're so excited and you're so on your game that you, you have to back up a little bit and be, force yourself to be patient, see mm -hmm. the curveball a little bit longer. You know, so all I, just, all I wanted to do was I wanted to be ahead of my brain when it comes to analyzing my processes because I just needed to change how I saw the pitch because I felt like I had to react. I only had a, a split second to make a decision. Yeah. So if I saw how it came out of the guy's hand, just slightly different. It forced my brain to look differently, and all of a sudden I forgot my slump. I was like, well, this is a different perspective. Yeah, I gotta no kidding. That, that's one of those things where I hear it, and I'm like, I could never do that <laughs> because I'm so, I'm so programmed to seeing one way, but that's one of those scenarios where it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe that is something I should try. And I, I did have that uh, one, one point this year where I'm facing a guy who's a slower pitcher. Uh, I want to say it was – it was one of the left-handers from San Diego, and so our hitting coach said, hey, maybe just scoot up a little bit in the box. Like, take a little bit of break off of his breaking ball. And I've had a lot of people talk about that and mention that throughout my career, and I just never felt comfortable with it. I felt good where I was in the box, and I would find ways to see the ball or feel good. And, and I did it that day, and I hit a double off the wall, and I kind of thought to myself, I was like, huh, you know, it's not, it's not, maybe it's not the, the coaching that I'm fighting, you know, maybe it's myself that I'm fighting. So that's where you got to put your guard down and say, that's probably something I should try. And when you hear advice from the most fierce competitor and that the game's ever had, mm -hmm. I think there's something to say about that to give yourself a different perspective or find a place where, <laughs> you know, cause if it doesn't look good from where you're standing, maybe if you stand in a different spot, it looks a little better. Yeah. Interesting. When, as a San Francisco Giant, do you get a chance to spend any time with Barry Bonds? I, I have, yeah, actually. I, I think that although he can be somewhat divisive, and especially when he was the man, I think he's a hitting genius. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about your relationship with Barry Bonds and what, what maybe he's demonstrated, shown you, whether it's hitting or not, to be a better baseball player. Um, his eye is incredible, and and not just – when he would swing or when he would hit, but watching players. Now, he would come down to the cage before the game and and just watch guys hit. And sometimes he wouldn't say anything. Sometimes he would say a little bit. Sometimes he would say a lot. But he would get into these conversations, and you could not help but listen. It didn't matter if you were included in it, if you're doing your work. Basically, the entire place would stop just to listen to him because <clears throat> everything that he had to say was purposeful. So he would talk about how he hit home runs and his home runs were never home runs is what he said. He said, the only thing that I tried to do is hit a long single. So it's the same swing, same mentality, same approach. It's just a single swing, but it ends up going further. So he had that idea that he's just going to get a base hit every time. 
Wow. And if somebody made a mistake in his area, it just happened to be a longer single. Hmm. I've really felt, and I don't really care about the the performance enhancing piece. Uh, That doesn't really mean anything to me. For a window of time, he had to be the most feared hitter since Babe Ruth. Easily, probably more feared than than him. I, I think he... (laughs) <laughs> his numbers are video game numbers. If you they if really you ever get a chance to go on to baseballreference.com and look up Barry Bond's career stats, he set all sorts of records. He had like a hundred intentional walks in a year. Like, yeah. Are you kidding me? That's a hundred a hundred times where someone said, like, no, I don't even want to take a chance pitching to this guy. Yeah. And then take take away the other two hundred walks that he had in that year. And that's just Number one, a culmination of, yes, he does have a very good eye and knows what he's hunting, and he has a very good approach at the plate, but the fear that he put into the guy standing on the mound was uncanny. Yes, almost Tiger Woods-like mm-hmm. in, in a way. One of my favorite moments in baseball, uh, and I love baseball. It's something I did until I tore my rotator cuff. It was like my only thing I did as, <laughs> as, a, as a kid. was when they played the Angels in the World Series. I think it was game five, but I could, it could have been game six. And at the time, the Angels' best reliever was Troy Percival. Mm-hmm. So he comes up, and Bonds is going to be the third batter in the inning. Strikes out the first guy, strikes out the second guy. And then he gets like 2-2 with Bonds, and Bonds hits one like 600 <laughs> feet into the upper deck walkway. I remember that. And then he strikes out the next guy, and the Angels win game six to force a game seven. And the, the, they come out. And the uh, the lady wants to do the interview for mm-hmm. NBC, and he's laughing. He goes, "All I came out here to do in the ninth inning was to, to get the first two guys out, so that I could see what I would what would happen if I gave him my best fastball." And baby, did we find out? <laughs> Has that ball landed yet? And I thought that was oh. so that was so awesome for him to be able to be that open about his intention there. Mm. But it's also Man, that ball came in at like 99 and left at 130. Oh, I, I mean, you can see it on people's face. You even saw it in the Angels dugout. They showed when you watch that video, you see everybody in the Angels dugout jaw just hit hit the floor. And they're like, did we really just see that? And like everyone's on the top step waiting. And and that was kind of what uh, what that era of baseball did was it. It was so exciting to watch. Oh, yeah. And I remember following the McGuire-Sosa home run race, and I was nine years old. And I went to the home run derby. It was at Fenway Park, so I got to go there. And I was watching Mark McGuire hit balls over the light tower. And I just could not fathom ever being able to do that. And I was like, this is just the most exciting thing. And guys are throwing 98 miles an hour, and they're just hammering it. And it was it was a fun time. Oh man, no no doubt about it. Because uh, yeah, in that moment, you also had Frank Thomas, oh, and you know Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Griffey, this, like just, all yeah, these guys uh, were just pitting. studs. Oh, so much fun, so much fun. And to me, that that was a that was an important time because it came off a really tumultuous strike mm-hmm. in baseball, and in some ways, I still don't think baseball has recovered. Is a fan sport, mm. but it's still gigantic within the youth of America. It is. It is massively powerful. But it's it's interesting to me. I think it's also shown in statistics to show that as soon as baseball, like Little League Baseball, Pony League Baseball, Babe Ruth, stuff like that, as soon as it went from 
learning to play the game and playing the playing the game to a means to get a scholarship or mm. bust baseball and off sports really but baseball was one of the first ones to fall off of the rails as it was if i'm not good enough to play to the next level i quit right I was like, that's one of the things that was blew me away because I went to Mississippi State, another college baseball powerhouse, mm-hmm. and to watch how the guys that made it versus not make it, and how like some of the things that would come out of them, especially like the freshmen and the sophomores, they were young and they find out that this is, it's it's over. They're not they're not going to make it. And like, well, this is it's over. Yeah. Like my life's over. And I'm like, man, really? It's got to be more important than that. And that's a that's a really important piece, which also leads to the education piece that you talked about. But when you think about all the things that you've seen and done through the the ranks, what is that one that one thing that you can recall that makes you the most grateful that you are where you are today? I think when you see kids leaning over the railing begging you for an autograph or a picture or something that is so easy for you to fulfill that makes them so happy and run to their parents and say oh my god do you see like I got an autograph like I remember being that kid mm-hmm. like I loved the game so much that I wanted an autograph and like now I don't I have no care for memorabilia like it's not my my thing is yeah. just I don't understand it and so but I love that there is that awe factor yeah. and I, I think it's more that I remember that feeling so deeply of being like overly obsessed with the Red Sox and like loving Nomar Manny and all these guys Pedro Martinez like these guys were just they weren't human to me yeah and so I remember that feeling and to see someone look at you the same way and to pro- provide them with an experience that they may never get again is probably one of the most gratifying things that I will never take for granted as long as I play. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, obviously, there are many people out there that listen that may never even heard of your grandfather, Carl Yastrzemski, but he's one of very few people to have ever won the Triple Crown. Mm-hmm. And for those out there that don't know what that is, that is leading the league in home runs, RBIs, and batting average. To have that kind of force in your family obviously has its has its advantages. When you think about what your grandfather means to you, what what are some of the things that stand out there? Um, you know, in well, there's two different lights to this. There's one. There's the uh, the life factor. You know, having a male role model and someone that you care about and love to look up to, right? So that's that's one side of things where he's done a fantastic job of, you know, when I call him, he picks up. And he knows that there are times to call and times where he he wants me to figure it out for myself. So having someone who's had experience in the same field as you is so unique because, you know, you don't necessarily always go into the same field as your family, whether that be, uh, you know, if you had a grandfather that was a doctor, you may not end up being a doctor. You may be a salesman. Mm. And when that happens, you don't have that immediate connection on a certain level. So to have that connection on that level is really special. And in terms of 
<clears throat> baseball wise, he is in endless tank of knowledge. Um, he played the game for 23 years and all for one team. And it is <laughs> that, that hit me hard when I turned 23. Wow. Uh, you know, I thought about it. I said, he played 23 years for the Red Sox. I'm 23 years old. Hold on a second. My entire life right now, he showed up to Fenway Park every single day. And that, that like, that like kicked me in the chest. And I was like, whoa, maybe, maybe all these numbers don't really mean anything. Maybe that's the one that, that I need to focus on. How do you possibly stay in one place and perform so well that one team wants you for that extended period of time wow and so he got me to understand that there is a difference between playing baseball and having your life so you have to separate things from the field and off the field Mm -hmm. so you don't bring your off the field struggles to the field because it's going to affect your performance now if you bring your on the field struggles back to your house you're going to be hurting your family And that was something that I learned at a very young age where I would get so frustrated that I'd cry. Like when I'm eight and nine years old, like Mm -hmm. just so frustrated that I didn't get four hits. You know, I got three and I was so mad. And then by the time the game got harder and I started not getting hits in games, I was just furious. And he helped me understand that if you take that, mentality and bring it off the field you're never going to be successful in whatever you want because baseball is one of the hardest games and you fail 70 percent of the time so you have to stop trying to be perfect and understand that if you succeed 30 percent of the time you're going to be a hall of famer yeah boy that is really hard mm-hmm. because you spend so much time trying to be the best that you can be and and that's at a level that it's hard to it's hard for your brain to accept that 30% effectiveness with 100% effort would be considered great. It sounds insane, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. That's one of the hardest things for, you know, that's where golf and baseball have a lot of similarities is the fail, what is the perceived failure mm-hmm. of hitting, pitching, ball striking, putting, scoring, batting average. They're all kind of intertwined in failure management mm-hmm. and failure management. Well, first of all, you have to be able to learn you either win or you learn because as soon as you take the winner, you lose mentality. Oh. You're off the rails. Yeah. That'll drive you insane. But yeah. then you have to not be scared of that. Yeah. Right. So the, the fear factor of failure is one of the biggest emotional management processes that you have to go through at, at some point in your career mm-hmm. <clears throat> because you're going to be scared. You're going to say, man, if I screw up, I'm never going to make it to double A. Uh, if, I, if I don't have a good game, I'm never going to be as good as I potentially can. Or we have our hitting coordinator in town, so I have to have the greatest game. Then he's going to think this way, tell this guy something, and then I'll get moved up or get my chance. It's the most crippling feeling. Yeah. And the second that you let that go and you understand that it's not – it's not relevant. Like being scared of failure is so dumb when you look back, when you've let go of it, it's like, what was I scared of? Um, my biggest fear when I got called up was going back to, to triple a and never getting another chance to play in the big leagues. And it has to be a crippling fear. right there. It's incredible. 
And so, but I tricked myself and said, you know what? You played in the minor leagues for almost seven years. If you play one day in the big leagues and go back to AAA and you're still on the roster, then you're in a way better situation than you were yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I, I gave myself some some room for error there. Sure. So I felt good and then played okay. And then right after the All-Star break, we got to a situation where we needed more pitching because we had double headers coming up and and all of these these moves that needed to be made. And I was one of very few guys who had options left. So an option is when you get sent down, but it lasts for an entire year. So you get three years of options. So you can go up and down to the big leagues as many times as they want in one year, and it's still considered one option. So I go into in the morning and we have a day game and I see that I'm in the lineup and it's 1030. I'm like, okay, I got to start getting ready for the game. Boach calls me into the office and says, Hey, uh, we, we might be optioning you. And I said, okay. And my heart starts pounding. I'm like, damn, Mm -hmm. like here it is. Like I knew I wasn't playing great and I had a feeling that, you know, this might've been happening because we had so much turnover in the outfield at the time. So I said, okay, like, no, no worries. He said, well, if this guy can, can play, then we'll send you down. But if he can't play because he's still hurt, then you're still in the lineup. I said, okay. So 10 minutes later, he calls me back into the office. I knew that wasn't a good sign. He said, hey, I'm sorry that, you know, it's, it's the worst of the worst. We got to option you. And shook my hand and said, you know, it won't be the last time I see you. So I said, okay, you know, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to come play. You know, it meant the world to me to to get this chance. So I go and take a shower, and I come back, and I'm getting dressed, and the bench coach comes sprinting in out of, out of breath. Don't go anywhere. I'm like, okay, I, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have my flight booked. You guys haven't yeah. told me anything. So I'm just like, I was just going to wait until I was told what to do. He says, hang on a second. So I said, okay. Two minutes later, he comes back, and he says, all right, you're back in the lineup. Welcome back. And I was just like... <laughs> And then I go, I go 0 for 5 that day. <laughs> well, that's like that's like four years worth of emotion packed oh, into about a 25-minute time span. And I went from like the most – I was so upset, and then I processed it while I was in the shower. I said, doesn't matter. Like, you got such a cool opportunity. You hit a couple home runs in the big leagues. You got to play in front of your family and friends on the East Coast, and everybody got to see you play. Like, this was everything you ever dreamed of. So why would I ever be upset? Just because it, the slight chance it might be over, it's not not necessarily over, but yeah. it could, you know. And so I had, for somehow, some way, I processed that in like 15 minutes in the shower, and then come back and go over five, and I'm like, <laughs> great, that's <laughs> that's exactly what you're supposed to do to convince them that this is the right decision to make. Uh, so then I go, we go to Colorado the next day, have a doubleheader. And I hit two homers that day in the two games and just, ha- I mean, I played better than I'd ever played. And I was, and I thought back and I was like, well, why, why did that happen? Like what, 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 what just happened for me to kind of flip the switch? And it, it was that fear because I had already had that conversation. I had already gone through the process of them saying like, Hey, you're, you're out of here. And I kind of like, you know, metaphorically looked in the mirror and said like, that was what you were scared of? Like, it was painless. It didn't hurt. Now, I know it turned out well, but why would I let a conversation like that 
control my emotions of a game that I love. You purged a ghost. Yeah. The a ghost of the ghost of some type of fear. Yeah. Uh, turned out to be just that a ghost. And and everybody's got one. You yeah. know, you, you oh, have yeah. some some sort of fear or something that's gonna keep you chained up. And until you find a way to pick that lock. Uh, you know, you may not even know about it, which is the hardest thing. You may not know why you have an anxiety at the plate. You may not know why you, your heart rate goes up or you lose your breath. You know, there's mm-hmm. just these, these things that where maybe one little moment unfolds and you see the big picture and you say, huh, that, that's not too bad. Yeah. So that was, that was my, uh, <laughs> my, my ghost for sure. Yeah, that's, a, that's awesome. Well, as we shift our, our conversation from what it is that makes you great and put you into this great position to what it is that you do to recharge your batteries. Most Mm -hmm. times it's things that bring a lot of people together and music, sports, and food and wine are three very popular places to do that. So when you think about your favorite music, what's your favorite music? Who are your favorite bands or musicians? Um, I've got a lot of different favorites. Um, because I go through a lot of different different moods. You know, there's times where there's like pump-up situations where I want something to kind of get me going, where I like old-school rock. I like Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, and newer bands like Greta Van Fleet that yeah. kind of emulate them. That I, I love that type of music, but I also get into phases where, where I like rap, where I like, um, you know, Mac Miller... Um, I like Drake and there are these, these guys that just have unique styles that yeah. kind of draw you to them for certain situations. And then I'll listen to country too. You know, when there's times to relax, I, I really like reggae. Um, interesting. Yeah. Right. So like big sublime revolution, um, just these, these guys that create a more relaxed atmosphere. Yeah. Dave Matthews band has always been one of my favorites. Um, but then it's, it's also a different scene when you want to go watch a show because, you know, the, the most entertaining guy that I've heard that I've always wanted to go see that I love is Bruce Springsteen and I like his music and my, you know, I grew up listening to him with my family, but he is drenched in sweat at the end of a show. Like he gives every show, everything he has and almost like Garth Brooks in a sense where I went and saw him with a buddy of mine, and this was before I like I wasn't like dire into country music, but I saw that show and I said, "Wow, that is powerful. <laughs> that was powerful. That's a guy doing what he loves to do day in and day out, and giving his heart and soul. And you can relate to that. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I find that's so interesting about professionals that achieve a level of success is they gravitate towards certain musicians that resonate the same kind of whether it's perseverance or prowess or power or finesse or softness that makes them successful Greta Van Fleet is a very interesting uh choice there because I love Greta Van Fleet mm. and I, I was there they came to Nashville but their show got canceled because I was supposed singer. to go uh, yeah. so I'm they're going to December it's December 18th I think is yeah. when it's going to be so I'm really excited to go and take my boys um but like they get criticized for being an imitation of Led Zeppelin. And I always find that that's interesting because in some ways, everybody's influenced by the past. Mm-hmm. And it's the haters that want to pull down 
the them because they do they miraculously they sound exactly like that. Oh, it's so impressive in a way. That's what drew me to him, yeah. though. Like I, I loved Led Zeppelin, and I actually used Led Zeppelin as my walkout song. And hearing that, I was like, I wish Led Zeppelin could make more music. Well, now they kind of can. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's cool <laughs> to like keep that going. You know, like you can't ever lose history. You have to kind of keep progressing it. Yeah. And and I think that's that's one of the coolest ways is through music. Yeah, no question. I remember I was doing my radio show, um, and the the out music going into break was highway tune mm-hmm. but i i wasn't paying attention to the screen of like what's going on in front of me so go to commercial break and then go to my producer like hey hey jimmy what led zeppelin song was that he goes that wasn't led zeppelin i'm like no 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 the song that we went out on <laughs> i've listened to every led zeppelin song in the world a hundred times i've never heard that one could you tell me because no that wasn't led zeppelin Oh well, then who was it? Like, that new- was Robert Plant. I know it was. <laughs> he goes, "It's this new band. You got to check them out called Greta Van Fleet." So I look him up. And I'm like, "Is that like the guy looks like he's 14? Obviously, oh, he's crazy. like 22, but like, wow, they are impressive. They are. When you saw Bruce Springsteen, I've not seen Bruce in a long time, and when I did see him, it was a very small, intimate show that wasn't his normal production, and it was right when he came out with his acoustic album Ghost of Tom mm-hmm. Joad in 1995 I saw him in a small place in Chicago and it was just those songs so it didn't mm-hmm. like bring in anything else how long he plays like extremely long shows and leaves them all out all on the like leaves it all on the field so mm-hmm. to speak what is it about that show that you remember the most about the boss so I I haven't seen him. He's the guy who oh. I want to see. Oh, you have you want to see? Okay. Yeah, but I've seen it um, multiple times on like documentaries and stuff like that. And his care level is through the roof. That that's what's so impressive yeah. is that he is there to put on a show. He's not there to make money. Now, is that a, a benefit of him getting to do what he loves to do? Yes, but that's not why he's on stage. Yeah. Like he's on stage to give you a storytelling experience where he's telling a story through the microphone and you're just in awe watching him. Yeah. And he did a, um, he did this special on Netflix and it was a documentary where he would tell you the story of the song, where he wrote it, why he wrote it, who he was with. And it was like the coolest thing because you get to see the entire process of how he came to be. And, those are the things that when you get to a certain level in your career, like people never saw that. So like we didn't see his struggles. We didn't see, mm-hmm. you know, any hardships or certain things that he really had to break through in order to achieve his, his goal. Mm-hmm. And that was so unique to see. And it, it's powerful. You know, oh, you get yeah. to, you get to relate with someone on a certain level where if you see like Bruce Springsteen, went through some sort of sad time. You get sad and you look at someone like that and you say like, wow, like I, I can get through this. It's, it's motivational. It's, it's powerful and it's, it's fun. Yeah. So true. Because I think one of the things that disappoints me is some of my favorite bands, they don't like to talk about where the song comes from because they want it to be your story too. And if they tell you what, what the song's about, then it loses its mm-hmm. power for you. But in some ways I don't, 
I see what they're saying, but I really think that the level of human connection that is that you can really harness and grab a hold of is that when you put these people that are that are superstars on this pedestal and then you get to humanize them, mm. it makes them that much more powerful to you because you're like, wow, it wasn't as it wasn't as easy as he makes it look right now. Right. Man, he fought through some stuff. And if he can do it, then I can do it. And I'd love music for that particular purpose alone. I mean, I love it for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I'll never forget, I, I, everybody's go through some tough times. So I'm 20 years old and I'm, I'm really mad. Got a lot of bad things going on that are out of my control. Mm. And I went to see Pantera mm. in uh, Columbus, Georgia. And I loved Pantera because, uh, in a way, any time that I was mad, I'd listen to that. And about three songs in, I'm like, man, I'm mad, but I am not that mad. <laughs> and when I saw him live, the level of he, – like, he lets you – like, he's living that song mm-hmm. on stage. And it's almost therapeutic slash cathartic to – to watch somebody who's arguably the greatest metal band of all time, mm-hmm. they're in a certain, them and Metallica and a handful of others in that, that rarefied air, of like, man, and his story is awful. So then you know why he's mm-hmm. mad. But like to, to the fact that he can create an art form out of that much pain and literally 15,000 people can be motivated by the pain and it's, yes, it's aggressive. I'm not going to deny that it's aggressive, but at the end of the day, that's just part of life. Right. And to have that outlet is really critical and powerful because you can't hold it all in or it's going to kill you. And it's there's outlets come in multiple forms. Mm-hmm. And like you said, sometimes it that's what you need, and sometimes you just need you know something smoother and softer. But that's 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 key. And it's funny you bring up Pantera too because uh, they are one of the few like heavy metal bands that I do know of because. I never listened to a whole lot of heavy metal. Now I went through a a Metallica phase and a little bit of Pantera, but it was more these past couple of years that I I had heard them and it was more like lifting and just one of those times where I hate how I'm playing. I'm so angry and I know that I can't take it out on the field. So I have to exert that energy somewhere. Like it needs to come out of me so it doesn't build up and create an inner demon. And to be able to find an outlet and not be able to create harm out of that outlet, because like you said, it it can be aggressive. And it was, it was amazing how much more I gained from that music than what I ever thought I could in saying, you know, Hey, just give it a chance. If you're, if I'm angry, like, don't be afraid to listen to angry music. That's okay. You know, like just let it go. That's right. So true. What's the greatest concert you've ever been to? Mm greatest concert i've ever been to that garth brooks show was incredible mm-hmm. um just the energy that was flowing through the room and to see it was at bridgestone so it was a big venue and oh, watching yeah. those guys was it was so cool but i think what the rolling stones in foxborough was probably oh, the best wow. concert i've ever seen i can't imagine so there's like i'm not the biggest rolling stones fan but I am a fan of that longevity. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they probably have the largest library of songs of anybody in the world. I don't think anybody can come close to them. Right. And the fact that they have 
40 number one songs is, is enough to <laughs> that makes you think like okay they did something right they did something right i cannot imagine that'd be like seeing led zeppelin or the beatles or you know my goodness you know, at the end of the day you know who knows but at the end of the day that's legend stats what was it like it was surreal because you go through this process of like okay, I know I'm going to the Rolling Stones, so you go through your binge of listening to every song you possibly can and kind of catching up with stuff. And then you get there, and the theatrics are great and all, but the second that you see Mick Jagger just start dancing on stage and have no holds at 60-something years old, I was just like, this guy's still doing it. Like yep. This is incredible. And it was cool to know that like my parents had seen them and – you know, there are so many people who have that in common that you're sharing an experience with that you get to take home with you and you forever have that. Mm -hmm. So I'll never forget they played Paint It Black was the first song they played and there was just all these smoke and they had the big lips up on the on the back of the stage and Mick Jagger just walks out just dancing so happy to be up on stage. Now, what was making him happy, uh, that's, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly but he, right. But he was doing it. So it was it was a great show, tons of energy and fun. And, you know, we had we didn't have the greatest seats in the world, but that made it better because you yeah. appreciated it more. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that makes venues like that so impressive when you pan back on it is that there's 70,000 people there of all different beliefs, mindsets, professional trades, positives and negatives in their lives and they all come together for one mm -hmm. one thing and they're everybody's together in the love of that particular moment which we could certainly use more of in this world for sure but that's why music is is a major force across the globe and in, in every in every way it's because it's a uniting force for sure when you think of obviously you play baseball but i'm sure you've loved all other sports what are some of your favorite teams, sports, growing up, and even now? What what keeps you glued to the TV when it really when it comes down to it? Um, the Patriots are number one. Yeah, uh, easy easy for me as a kid growing up in New England and in the Tom Brady era. You know the <laughs> it's funny. I tell my wife uh, when she's having a bad day. Usually it's a Monday, and I'll say, "Hey, you have something to look like to be happy about." She goes, "What?" I go. You're fortunate enough to grow up in the same era that Tom Brady's playing for the New England Patriots, and you get to watch that. How great is that? And then she just rolls her eyes and walks away from me because she doesn't get it like I do, you know? But so the 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 Patriots are number one. That's, I think, the, like, Brady, Edelman are probably two of, like, five people in the world that I think I would, like, truly be starstruck in front of where I'd kind of meet them and just have that like uh i, I don't know what to say and yeah. do the the whole like the super fan rumbling like oh my god i'm, I'm such a fan like yeah. and th those are those guys but huge hockey fan too bruins love, i i did love the bruins growing up but i'm, I'm a big preds fan now yeah. um they do an awesome job here i've gotten to meet a bunch of the guys on the team so it's easy to root for people you know yeah and i and i love that and i love that they're so good and they create such a good atmosphere at the games. And what was it last year? They were the number one franchise in all of sports by ESPN, which yeah. is incredible for an ex like an expansion team, essentially, yeah. you know, from 99, you know, 20 years later and they're the number one franchise in sports. That's, 
that's very impressive with no. what the city has done with them. No doubt. I think other teams, because I know that the uh, the Ducks organization mm-hmm. came here to study what we were doing, because th- and the Titans too. Mm-hmm. Like that, it's interesting being a person who's lived here now. When both the Titans came and the so when I came here, they, neither mm-hmm. team was here. Right. Um, to watch how the the Predators created a a fan culture, mm. and the Titans didn't. It was like a, almost the exact opposite right. sensation. Do you think it's like the, is it the sport? Is it hockey is so fast-paced and there's never a break, and, you know, you have breaks in between plays, and or do you think that it's one of those things where it's like winning solves everything? Well, we were, we, it was well, a fun. The Titans a, it were was good a for a little bit, though. Yeah, well, the, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, the, the Preds weren't very, very good when it was still an awesome show to come see. Right. And the Titans were really, really good. And I don't know if it was just because of how management and or the coaches answered questions or how they, they – I guess the, the Titans have a blue-collar mindset mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily make people want to dive on the bandwagon because right. there's not much exciting going on. Well, there's a downside to being a, a Titans fan is that they play a – Old style football, where it's more running. We haven't really had a super quarterback since McNair, mm-hmm. and so without a major quarterback, you're you're always left to be a, hope hope to win twenty three twenty and win with defense in a running game, right? Which is even what we did with McNair. To be honest with you, yeah. I probably lost ten years of my life just watching that great Titan stuff. But at the end end of the day, you know, it's easy to be spoiled. As a Patriots fan, it would be easy to be spoiled by, you know, a Colts Broncos fan mm-hmm. when you have Manning and and Brady, yeah. and it's so obvious their impact because of the year that Tom Brady was injured and missed the whole year, the Patriots are terrible. Yeah, and when Peyton Manning is out for that year with the Colts, they're literally terrible yeah. with everybody else but Peyton Manning. And when he leaves the Broncos, and he was really a much less effective quarterback his last year than he but was. still had a good impact. And win the Super Bowl. Yeah. And then he leaves, and as soon as he leaves, Crazy. descending. It lets you know that there is, there is the capital IT. Mm-hmm. There is the big it. They have a level. They, walk in, they have to be able to walk into a huddle, and no matter where you are, you have to – everybody feels like, we got we got the man. Yeah. Well, let's do the full circle here now. This is what Corbs does. He puts the right people in the right place. And that's kind of what these successful franchises have done where, you know, Lobby's an unbelievable head yeah. coach, you know, and he does he does what seems from an outsider's perspective of a really good job of his job, which is managing those guys, making sure that they're confident going into their into their game, making sure that they're prepared. And all of these little itty-bitty things that we forget about when we're watching the game, you say, oh, you know, why did he miss that play? You know, like, what happened there? Well, we don't know the whole story, you yeah. know? And so that's where Corbs does a really good job with his recruiting and teaching is that it's not about everything on the field. you got to have the right guys off the field, in the locker room. And <laughs> when it comes to winning, it's not about having the best players. Yeah. It's about having the guys who want to play for the guy next to them because they're going to go above and beyond if they really care about that guy as opposed to saying, like, oh, man, think about how much pressure there is when I'm saying 
I have to, I have to score this goal right here because it's, it's my pocket. It's my money. It's my livelihood. Yeah. That's intense to say like, look and say like, man, I'm going to score this goal for Virgil right here. I know how bad he wants a championship and that's almost relieving as opposed to the stress of putting it on yourself. You say, let's do it for someone else. Yeah. Playing for something bigger than yourself is a major impetus to greatness. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. One of the things I, I would always give credit to Belichick is he is, for his life as a coach that I can recall, he's always filled roles with people that you would never, like Edelman's a perfect example. Right. Um, Wes Welker's another example. Troy Brown playing defense <laughs> in, in maybe 2001 yeah. or 2002. He brings in people that are what appear to be past their prime, Corey Dillon, mm-hmm. to have Awesome careers, saves Randy Moss's career in some ways. Of course, you know he's a benefactor of having Tom Brady, but at right. the end of the day, Tom Brady's a benefactor of having Randy Moss. Exactly. Uh, it's fascinating because that, I think that's his actual gift. It is. Is that he is able to say, I got the perfect guy for that spot, and probably even better so is that you underestimate Julian Edelman because he was a – a small school quarterback, how right. can you're going to be a slot receiver? And that cornerback's, I'm going to chew you up and spit you out, and then <laughs> it doesn't happen. Until he doesn't. That's right. Yep. So true, so true. Is that, what's, the, what's the best live game you went to go see? Mm. Whether it be Pats or any, like any game, what was the, the coolest game you've ever been to? <laughs> and this is where uh, <clears throat> the thought of being spoiled with the Yastrzemski name is definitely going to come into play as I went to every single home playoff game of the Red Sox when they were going through the 04 World Series run. Oh, wow. So the Dave Roberts steal, the big poppy home runs, the Kurt Schilling sock, all of those games. So <sighs> I don't think I can really put like one game. It was that entire year. Yeah. And the coolest part was my grandfather threw out the first pitch of game one. So got to see that, got to be there for those big moments. And I remember I remember that Dave Roberts steal because every single person in the ballpark knew he was going. Everybody on the field, everybody in the stands. <laughs> and and uh, Mariano picks off four times in a row, I think it was. Might have been three. <clears throat> and you saw him take off and everybody stands up on the edge of their seat because that that's the season right there. <clears throat> and then... Swipe second. I think it was Mark Bellhorn that hit a single up the middle right after that, tied the game up, and then Big Poppy wins the game. The yeah, and late, and it was just especially when you're in such a fanboy part of your life where I was living and dying with the Red Sox, mm-hmm. and so that was just the the ultimate game for sure. Oh yeah, and to me, there's there's so much in that series that's so critical, like being down three zero to the Yankees, and how many like really clutch players they had and two of the greatest clutch hitters of all time and and mm-hmm. Manny Manny Ramirez and Big Poppy David Ortiz have you spent any time with with those guys and what was did you ever get a chance to you know even no. a, even a little bit yeah you know? no i didn't get to meet them um the guys that i met were more Dwight Evans, Louis Tiant, Jim Rice mm-hmm. and i actually saw them this spring training and they always come up to me and give me a hug and say you know you know, keep working. It's going to work your way sometime. Like, so it, it's cool to know those guys and to have been able to, at some point in my life, work with them. Possibly the greatest player that doesn't get any recognition is Jim Rice. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's incredible. Yeah. He's a huge dude, too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No doubt about it. He's a stud athlete. 
As are you are you a big fan of of wine and 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 in any way? Are you a wine guy? I am. Yeah, you know, I was kind of forced into it. Um, my father-in-law is a is a big winey, and he's got a, a nice wine cellar. And so, the funny story I have for you about wine is where I almost blew my chance at ever drinking good wine for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, I'm in college, so you know you don't you don't know any different at the sure. time. And he brings out a really nice wine, and he tells me, you know, this is the first hundred pointer you'll ever drink. And I'm going, okay, okay, like, what does that mean? And he gave us like three different wines to taste, and one of them was a hundred pointer. Two of them were kind of just like almost like box wines. And he's like, you know, which one do you like the best? And my response was, <laughs> uh, you know, like. It's just wine. It doesn't taste any different. It just tastes like wine. And he's like, he kind of looked at me, and I was like, "Oh man, that wasn't the right answer." Start kind of like tapping my foot on the ground. This is obviously way before he's my father-in-law, so I'm like, "Man, I'm really blowing this one right here." Um, but ever since, I have been much more enlightened. Took my first trip to Napa this year. Oh, cool! Which is cool, and got roped into joining a uh, a wine club. Nice. So I, I'm a member up at Sequoia Grove. Nice. Which I uh, I was a big fan of. Yeah. So um, my man Oscar up there helped me out and had a had a good time, and it was actually really eye opening to see the whole process. It really is an eye opening event. I went to uh, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars mm. there, and you know I, I took Wine Appreciation Mississippi State, so I, we we learned about the importance of Stag's Leap winning that the taste the taste of Paris, and then when they beat all the big names out of mm-hmm. Bordeaux and. So that's why I wanted to go there, and like, it was so cool to see it from, you know, from vine to bottle. Right. It was pretty, pretty powerful to watch. Like, it's it's way more than just the sexy part of pulling the cork and drinking it. No, a hundred percent. And I was totally blown away by the the process of it all. That's and crazy. Yeah, it really is crazy. The, the temperatures, the soil contents, the sunlight, everything has some little factor, and you don't realize that and they they chronicle every day as if it's life mm-hmm. because they're just looking for trends and what they can expect and constantly testing the sugars and the grapes etc it's it's a very interesting uh like i i love the idea of blending different grapes to create something mm-hmm. and i obviously love great wine and i love all kinds of wines i'm not really i'm, I'm a red guy more so than i am a white guy but I'm not really overly particular about the type of red. I, I'm interested in, I like, I like hearing the story behind the winery or obviously I love the idea of pairing things and how the wine brings out the best of the food and the food brings out the best in the wine. And that's pretty, that's, that's one of my favorite things to get mm-hmm. involved in when it comes to like people coming over or, or I'm being asked to go to a, an event with wine and food, whatever. Do you have your, what's your favorite wine? Oh, favorite, um, um, favorite bottle you've ever had? Ooh, favorite bottle I've ever had. Um, so this is we're gonna go back to to DJ. He uh, he opened up before I left for spring training this year. A um, hundred pointer from Tom Seaver, and it's it's Tom Seaver's vineyard. And I don't remember what it specifically was. Whether I I think it was a cab, and he said it was more. This is more or less the story. The wine was incredible. It was, one of the best wines I've ever drinking, but Doug said to me, you know, keep this bottle cap. It's like, cause on the, uh, on the foil, it has like a little baseball printed on top. 
And he said, you know, it'll it'll bring you good luck this year. And it's still in my car. I love that. And that was one of those things where I could see it. And it wasn't necessarily like a motivational factor. But every time something good happened, I'd get in my car to drive home. And I'd look and I'd see it. And I was like, huh, maybe he's right. Maybe something good will happen this year. It's always nice to have a beacon of light. Yeah, exactly. You know? I'm like, I love, like, I would have to say that my, the greatest wine I've ever had was a, a 19... 86 Latour mm. and it was mind blowing and I've also had a 90 <laughs> 95 and a 97 Hillside Select from Schaefer and that is like because they're different like I always have to like people's what's the greatest wine you've ever had I'm like well I always have to go by region because I've been very fortunate to have a lot mm-hmm. of great wines Schaefer Hillside Select is so good it'll make you tear up oh. it's so unbelievably good I've had a few Beck staffers that are (laughs) you know when you talk about those moments it's like you you sip the wine and you're like it can't possibly be that good (laughs) that's exactly right and then all of a sudden you go okay i could not have been more wrong because it just got better yeah it got even better in 10 more minutes it's going to be even better oh yeah so true (laughs) that is like to me that's one of the things that it makes the wine become somewhat of a conversation piece with the food Mm. And obviously it does, obviously it helps to be around people that either appreciate it or love it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it can be a major ingredient to get conversation going. And it, once it gets going, it never really stops because it takes off the, you know, obviously drinking a glass of wine, it will take all, take the edge off conversation and anxiety of meeting different people or Mm. just people that you haven't seen in a long time or ever before. And, And that's, once again, I'm a big believer in connectivity, and, and the, we're losing that in the world today as we get more and more in down the world of the phone and, mm-hmm. and, and social media and less interacting. Anything that I can do in life that makes people interact again is something that motivates me to be what I'm, where I'm going in my life. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's one of those things that I feel like I want to be better at is understanding those pairings, like you say, but the connectivity of it is so important. And that's where I I find myself in a funny situation with my social media world is that I don't follow social media to keep up with people. I I spend my time sending it to other people, Mm -hmm. you know, finding something to laugh about and bring somebody else into. So that way we can have something to talk about when we see each other or, text about it or find some sort of connection with someone else and for me it's always golf it's the the golf comedy ones and Mm -hmm. um just stuff like that where you find some sort of relief and bringing someone else into it yeah no doubt speaking of golf you're 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 an addict i am like like, i am i'll admit it like all of us (laughs) When you, when you think of golf, what golf means to you, especially in the off-season, so maybe when you travel some and during season, but certainly in the off-season, it becomes a major part of your day-to-day. What does golf mean to you? How did you get involved in it? I started playing when I was a kid. So I grew up hitting left-handed and would hit the back of my dad's clubs at his golf course, and I'd try and hit him across a little creek. And then as I get older, I obviously, like everyone, want to start hitting a driver. So I start hitting the back of his driver, and I start denting it. <laughs> and that was the last time I swung a golf club left-handed, and he started making me hit right-handed. So I, I'd like to say that I grew up playing, but as I got older, I took some lessons, and 
did some camps and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but it was more or less to get me out of the house because I was probably driving everybody crazy. Yeah. And then I tried out my freshman year for our high school team. And it was at this tough nine hole course, really hilly greens are all odulated. And I played some of the worst golf I've ever played in my life. And I was like, all right, I'm done playing golf. So I stopped for like three years and would only play every now and then with friends. And then I got to college and started playing a little more in the off time in the off off season. And then my father-in-law was a golf player in college. And then my brother-in-law is also a very good golfer. So then it became competitive. Yeah. And then it was more like, okay, well, let me just go out and outdrive these guys because that's what we do naturally. Yeah. And that was my thing. I I would swing as hard as I can, as you learned when yeah. you first saw me. That's right. <laughs> it was pretty impressive. I and, and I was firing off some good club head speeds with a seven iron and realized I didn't need to do that because I couldn't keep it straight. Yeah. So then... I started playing with people that were way better than me. And that was like the game changer for me because number one, competitively, I hate losing in every aspect of the word and every everything I do. And so that just drove me. I was like, God, I got to get better. And so then I started watching and learning and figuring out that baseball and golf are actually almost the same swing nowadays. There was this old... There was this old theology of hitting where it was from point a to point b and had to be very hands-based and now people are looking at now that we have all this science and technology which baseball is 30 years behind golf in yeah and it's a rotational sport like you have to understand that like it's it's a golf swing but at a moving ball and and the plane is higher because you're hitting right. it in the air. Right, but it's still you have to have a positive attack angle. Absolutely. And you have to be on plane and you have to be using the right muscles or you're not going to get your best result. Yeah. And that's the, the thing that's tough about measuring baseball as opposed to measuring golf is you can't really account for the reactiveness. You know, we don't know how to measure that yet. How yeah. do you measure for a – you can measure the spin on a fastball, the velocity, but – how do you learn how to measure the reaction from the brain to the body? That's what's so hard. Yeah. And, but that's what really got me better at my baseball swing was learning my golf swing mm-hmm. and watching some of these videos and learning the terminology and how guys get their weight into their back hip, how they transfer it off and how they shallow out the club and all these things that in baseball is just getting on plane and yeah. getting into your backside and staying on it. Yeah. And it, it was so similar that, I was just like, why are we separating these things? Like, why not just kind of take some... A lot of people are taking drills from golf and using them for baseball now. Yeah. Well, Reniac, Reniac was the first hitting coach that that kept the the barrel above the knob mm-hmm. at all times. The the barrel traveling, you know, it, it appeared, keyword, appeared to be descending through the zone. Mm-hmm. So it had more plate coverage so that you were less apt to strike out and put more balls in play. Mm-hmm. And it kept the spine up so that your body would rotate easier, be easier on your body. And versus the Reggie Jackson, where it was kind of like stride, level the bat, mm-hmm. and swing level, 
that's a that's a golf killer. Yeah. Now you can play baseball that way. There's Hall of Famers are full of it. Yeah. But in all actuality, the first really great baseball swing that would have evolved to a good golf swing was Babe Ruth. Mm. Babe Ruth kept his his trail side high <clears throat> in the transition or the stride yep. into the into the hit. The barrel came. The barrels up stayed above the knob. It didn't. It didn't dip under, which was Mark McGuire's biggest challenge when he started to struggle. Yep. The stride got big. The spine went back, and the barrel got underneath his underneath the knob. So the back got real heavy. So he was always late striking out or popping up a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I tell, tell all these kids like golf and ba- I want baseball players. I want tennis players. Mm-hmm. I want people that have hit something rotation and hit it hard <laughs> and hit it hard because it is not that different. If you can hit a baseball hard. Good, because I'm going to teach you how to hit a golf ball really hard. And if you think it was hard hitting a 90-mile-per-hour fastball, wait till the ball's just sitting still. (laughs) (laughs) It's just staring back at you like, come on, try and hit me. That's exactly right. (laughs) I've always found that to be so true. It's like, that's what I'm always interested in when I do get a baseball player. I want to know what they're taught hitting Mm. so that I can not ruin their hitting as long as baseball matters to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I can do that, but it is I just need to know. I'm on a need-to-know basis because if you're not being taught, if you're taught to squish the bug, hang you know, more back, I have to, I'm going to have to work around that a little yep. bit more. But if you're taught to you know, keep your trail side up, move into it a little more level, and rotate around yourself really fast, now we're in a golf world, and I'm sure that's where you right. see a lot of your – the conversation yeah. that you have. When yeah, and a lot now. of it has come from the uh, the new camera angles of almost essentially straight up above. And so being able to watch yourself from, you know, this may be like what Pete Rose was saying, seeing it from a different angle, seeing it from a different perspective, and then you can actually make an adjustment based on what's really happening. Yeah. And like Babe Ruth, he, he didn't have video, and he didn't have any – you could watch him, but he can't watch himself – and so with that, it was more feel and result-based. Yeah. And so that's where we got this, like, just speaking of what we think is really happening versus what we can actually prove is happening. Yeah. And they just have so much stuff that is relevant now that you can't explain with the old terminology. Yeah, so true. That's, to me, the thing that's – because I've now completely stepped out of the baseball world. The last thing I ever saw baseball breakdown – was McGuire stuck at 60 mm-hmm. when I was at Mississippi State and Coach Polk was getting all the <laughs> yep. guys together, breaking down why he's struggling and then relating it to why is he struggling? He's got the weight of the history on his back. He's got nine games left. This is a huge moment. This is going to be no different, just different words, different story. We're trying to win a college World Series. We're If we're down one – to Vandy, LSU, Cal State Fullerton, you're going to feel like this enormous amount of pressure to come through. Mm. You have to understand your nervous tendencies to break through. You can't work on what it is that you're doing when there's no pressure. Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out when you're searching to be the greatest player that you can be, that moment would probably put you at the World Series with two on and uh, 100%. What, what is going to happen then? And let's work on that right now so that when you're there, you're prepared to know, okay, in these moments, I'll have a tendency to be a little jumpy. I'll be trying to be, I'll be too apprehensive. I'm trying to over predict. Mm-hmm. 
what's going to happen. Yeah. Or, or whatever. So golf, I see a lot of, you know, the grip tension gets higher, which then leads to more arm tension. So the chest tension gets higher. So then when you, when your brain gets the feeling that you've made a full turn, it hasn't. Because the tension has reduced with the ability. So you reach that point where muscles tighten to like, okay, I'm fully coiled. You're actually not. Now you're out in front of it, and that's where the, the high right shot on the tour comes from. <clears throat> so that's why I play some of my best golf hungover. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly. Just in a miserable place and say, okay, just make it through the round. Just nice and easy. Yeah. Expectation management yeah. Is, is critical in golf. I can't tell you how many rounds of golf I've seen be the greatest round that players played with a terrible warm-up session. Mm. It's like batting practice. You have you hit a terrible BP, you're probably going to have a good game. Yeah, because it reduces the expectation to Barry Bonds' I'm just trying to hit a single. Yep. Can I just make contact, please? Yeah. Especially if you have a bad session, and you're, even if you're in a slump or not, you're just like trying to simplify it down to, can I just hit, put it in play? Yeah. Let's keep putting it in or play. Can I just strike the ball before the ground? Just, That's right. Just one time. I'm not asking for much here. Yeah. Can I just hit? Can I just put it in play, yeah. please? No, no doubt. I'm with you on that. I got to ask these questions because this is like, of all the things I would want to know, mm-hmm. who's got the best stuff in the major leagues? Oh. Uh, the last guy that I ever want to face again is Jacob DeGrom. Really? Oh, That's not fair. It's just not. like Really? He has the most effortless 98-mile-an-hour fastball you've ever seen. And then throws a 92 mile an hour slider. It's like, it's not fair. <laughs> Can't hit that. Wow. Um, another guy that I don't like facing, but I love competing against just because I know him so well is Walker Bueller. Um, he punched me out probably six times this year, but every time I punched out, it made me want to get up there again and just hit a homer off him because that's yeah. all I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we played for at Vandy for a couple of years together and, um, just fun to compete against the best you yeah know? no doubt yeah I've, I've heard a lot about Degrom being a beast and I, I don't know if you I'm sure you did like in the during the World Series and even in the in the world champ in the world's uh the, the league championship series they were putting out on on Twitter like these Garrett Coles like the pitches come out and then you watch the different yeah. balls break yeah, out the of this of the same I thought that was some of the coolest technology to help people understand one, how hard it is to hit a major league baseball. Right. And two, the ridiculous amount of talent these guys have. Oh. And how a pitch coming out of the same window. That's not going to do the same thing. That's not going to do the same thing. And how some people try to talk about, that are uneducated, so to speak, talk about all you're looking for is for that ball to come out of that certain window. And mm-hmm. I'm like, there's a perfect example of it isn't just right. coming out of that certain window. Because that was unbelievable. And that's what's so hard is you you have to be ready to hit 100 miles an hour with someone like Garrett Cole. And then he throws an 80-mile-an-hour curveball that starts at the exact same spot as that high fastball. So you're like, yep, here it is. Okay, that ball bounced. Oh, man. I'd look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Is um, What's the, the most intimidating venue that you've played in mm. baseball? Intimidating venue. Or the coolest stadium that you played in? Like, wow, this is unbelievable. Uh, actually, our stadium was the one that surprised me the most. Huh. It was because I've always been an East Coast guy. You know, I didn't – it's not that I, like, brushed off the West Coast. It was more like I wasn't exposed to it. Yeah. 
And our home field is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in terms of ballparks. It is so cool. Right on the bay, the views are awesome. It's so unique. It's windy. It's a unique backdrop. The walls are funky. Uh, it's just so cool. And But then the other one um, was Wrigley. That was really, really cool to be able to play there. I'd watch games there. And Fenway was special, but I'd played on Fenway before in like high school tournaments, stuff like mm-hmm. that. And Wrigley, I'd only been to one game, which was a World Series game when they ended up winning. I went to game five and got to experience it from the crowd and then to be able to experience it from the field was really cool. Oh, they have awesome, awesome. fans. Oh, yeah, they do. That's a really unique fan base, too, mm-hmm. the, the Cubbies. Yep. When you think of the greatest hitter, who is it and why? Barry Bonds, hands down. <clears throat> um, he did everything. He walked. He didn't strike out. He would hit for average, and he hit the most majestic home runs you'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to get wrapped up in what people think about, you know, steroids or whatever. It's a, it's a different conversation, but that doesn't take away from his pure talent. No question. Because he was always an unbelievable hitter and an unbelievable player. He was stealing 50 bases. You know, it's just something that he doesn't really get enough credit for, which he definitely deserves. If he doesn't get in the Hall of Fame, it's the most it's it's oh. a, it's epic level travesty. I know uh, it really it is. Uh, I just think back to like uh, there's where baseball needs to kind of like. Well, then it's like evolve. A how do bit. you let anybody from that era into the Hall of Fame if you don't let him in? Like you can't you can't. That was a time where you assumed that everybody did, and it wasn't it wasn't looked down upon at the time. Yeah, so, so. true. So but, true. You know, I just feel for guys like that in that situation. Yeah. Final question. You get to play one round of golf. Ooh. Who's your foursome? And on what golf course are you going to play it on? Okay. I'm going to play with Tom Brady, Mark Wahlberg, and this one's going to be weird, Tommy Fleetwood. Yeah, and right. we'd go play Baker's Bay in swim trunks and no shoes. Uh-huh. You ever been to Baker's Bay? No, I've been to the Abaco Club right by there, but it's the greatest place. I've been so fortunate to teach golf there a bunch. Mm. I was I was their guest instructor for the holidays in two thousand sixteen seventeen. It and obviously right now Baker's Bay is. A dust bowl. I know. It's a tragedy. tragedy. It's it's just so sad. I mean, think about it. For 23 straight hours, the wind blew over Baker's <sighs> Bay at 200 plus miles per hour. <laughs> uh, and so this, it's it's a devastating moment for a lot of people in the Bahamas. And obviously, that's a very unique community. And you're like, well, we can't really feel sorry for. for but I mean, it's a there's a lot of people's lives that depended on mm-hmm. that place. So it does matter because I know a lot of people that are Bahamians yeah. that are displaced because of it. And that's, no, a, it was, that's a bad situation. It was awful. And do they have or do they have a plan to kind of bring it back to, yeah, they to do. life? I, I think it's not going to happen as fast as they say, but, I mean, what else are they going to say? Right. At the end of the day, they got to 
they got to figure out a way to get power. They got to figure out a way to get manpower mm-hmm. there because now every day it's like you got to ship them in and ship them out because there's, there's right. no, nothing there. But at the end of the day, I've never seen a place like that. There's a level of everybody's on the same playing ground. If you're a member at Baker's Bay, mm-hmm. it's a it's not a an um, unbelievable golf course. It's a very good golf course, and it's in immaculate condition, as you might expect. But there's a level of relaxation that's like infused into you. So you're there in your barefoot swim trunks, floppy hat. <laughs> and it's like you get to you have an unlimited bar mm-hmm. to choose from. And you just get to make your own drink and you hit and you get loose and you're hitting Pro V1s off of perfect turf <laughs> into this perfect range. And then you you're get, just making it sound better than I ever thought it would be. And there's no such thing as a tee time. You just let them know that you're going to go play. And then you go play and you can ride your golf cart right up to the fringe and you get out <laughs> and you make your putt and you go to the next hole and the wind's blowing and you look out and one side's the bay, one side's the ocean. Oh. And you're surrounded by magnificent home architecture. I mean, mm-hmm. it's stunning, the, the homes that are there. And the whole thing comes to and you're driving around and like literally the biggest stars in the world are there and they wave at you they ask how you're doing they they pour you a, a they pour you a a, a, a tequila a casamigo a casamigo shot, shot. <laughs> it's uh and there's no pretentiousness nor like you're there and michael jordan's there and it doesn't matter to you nor him. Right. And and that's the biggest thing that I hope for in a future club that I would go to is the absolute lack of pretentiousness. You know, just it's not the fear of stepping on the wrong blade of grass or you get your member kicked out. It's I am a member of this place strictly because it relaxes me and this is where I want to spend free time yeah. and wind down and have that recharge that we talked about because – Golf is my one of my big recharge mm-hmm. activities, and to do that is just like it needs to be just relaxing and fun. And do I care about my score? Sometimes, yeah, you know, and only at the right times. And then it's about getting with a group of guys and having a good time and winding down. Yeah, because I think that one of the most important things that I think you probably had to learn too. 162 game schedule is a really grueling schedule. That it is, especially if you play probably would you play 55 games in your your largest college season? Yeah, 50. I think 56 is the most they yeah. let you play. Yeah, 56 games. Okay, so that's all. That's one third <laughs> of a major league baseball season. Yep. And the grind, like there's where the grind kicks in. Like you're not used to that, and then the the constant piece. Of, like, whew, we got 55 more games. I got a whole college season (laughs) left to go. That is so mentally draining that, and always playing Major League Baseball. But I mean, it's no, I mean, it's it's your job Mm -hmm. and it's what you're good at. And you put it all on the line every day. That's why the recharge is so important. Yeah. Because without it, you, you can't run on fumes. At no, the level that you're playing at. You're taking 12 flights a month, staying in 
different hotels, waking up in cities that you forget you're even in. And those are the, the grind aspects and the number, not, not the way it's done, not, not how you travel or anything like that. It's more, okay, we have 27 games and we don't have a day off. So that's 27 days in a row where you're <laughs> playing baseball and that's it. Like you don't have a, an, a weekend. Like yeah. you don't, you don't have five days and have two days off and say, Oh, this is a nice reset. I needed this weekend. Like <laughs> you can need a weekend for, for 25 days, you know, yeah, no doubt. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of Thanks your off-season <laughs> to come in to uh, discuss your life, your career, and the things that you hold important, both in what it takes to be great and what you do to recharge. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you very much. I got to say, this is a stroke of genius. The new Stroke Lab putters from Odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke. Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved the weight towards the head and the grip. You'll feel the difference immediately, and with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new Stroke Lab from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Available in stores February 8th. Learn more at odysseygolf.com.